I remember we lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina, sitting on the shag carpet in our den, watching the Oscars and our big TV and crying because I wanted to be there so badly. I just had this desire in my heart as a little girl that I wanted some form of the stage or television or entertainment. I went on auditions, I was involved in theater. Anytime a movie would come to our hometown, I would audition as an extra and somehow weasel my way into the background. It was just a desire of mine as a little girl. I was born this way. Growing up throughout my high school years, I just had this void in my life. And I remember asking my friend Cindy, why do I feel this way? I feel like there are people that don't understand me and don't even care about understanding me, but are still critical of me. The biggest regret for me is not living my life the right way for so long. I was 21 years old before I figured out that I needed to answer that knock on my door, which was God. I felt like if you did that, if I answered the door and I let God into my life, then I was gonna have to give up things that were fun and he wanted me to live a life that wasn't fun. Instead, the fun began when I did that. I was searching to be loved by other people. I was searching for friends. I was searching for acceptance. And then I asked God to come into my life and instantly he just poured blessings into my life. I wanted to be able to live a comfortable life. I wanted to have children after I had achieved my success because I didn't ever want to feel stressed about my finances. I was a planner. I had a whole life planned out. What I was gonna do, how I was gonna get to New York and what internships I was gonna do and what the stepping stones were gonna be. And so when I started trying to have children, it was not successful. And I ended up finally getting pregnant in the fall I went to the ultrasound and I heard the heartbeat and it was so beautiful and we were so excited. So then I went back for the next appointment and she walked in and she said, you know, I've had two other patients that have been in the same situation that you've been in Ainsley today. And um, I, I just want to prepare you that it might not be good. And I said, Dr. DeBrennan's, what do you mean? Like you, I didn't, there could be something wrong. She said, I'm sure everything's fine, but the baby was really small at the first appointment. And we knew that, I just thought that maybe we had miscalculated the birthday or she had miscalculated it and maybe the numbers were off. She, you know, puts the stuff on your stomach and runs that ultrasound and she saw the baby and we saw the baby on the screen and just like before she had to find the heartbeat and we saw the heart and she put the wand in that area and there was no heartbeat. And so she looked at us and she just said, I'm so sorry. And she just tried and she tried and, and there was nothing there. There was no heartbeat. And so um, we had, um, we had just prayed for a healthy baby. And I knew that um, God answered that prayer. You walk down the streets of New York and you see other girls with their carriages and their strollers and their babies and their baby bumps and you want it so badly. I started thinking, should I have done this earlier? You know, is this my fault? What's going on? I remember going in for the DNC, which is the surgery. And I remember crying because I didn't want them to take her away from me. I just imagined like my child going for testing and it was so scientific and this was my child. 
I just, I just thought, I'm gonna be separated from this baby until I go to heaven. just knew like everything in my life, I had to wait a little bit longer. His plan is not my plan. His time frame is not my time frame. And there are seasons in our life and he's teaching us through each of those seasons. And at this point he was teaching me to wait and to be patient and to trust him. And so I had no choice. We, um, we go out to dinner with some friends and, and then I told my husband, I was like, I think we probably need to take a pregnancy test. And so, it was not romantic at all. We went into the bathroom in our tiny little apartment, in our pre-war apartment, this terrible bathroom. I just, you know, did the pregnancy test and it said pregnant. <laughs> we were in shock, in shock, not expecting it at all. The doctor told us, everything's great. She said, I promise you, everything is perfect. I wanted to tell my mom on Mother's Day. And I sent my mom a picture of the ultrasound and I put it in an envelope and I wrote, you know, you're gonna be grandmother. Mom waited all day to open it. I called her, I said, did you get my gift? Yes, I haven't opened it yet, I'm, I promise you I will. I said, mom, will you please just get the gift and open it while I'm on the phone with you? And she said, what is this? She pulled out the picture. She said, are you having a baby? And I said, yes, and she just starts screaming, Wayne, 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 that's my dad's name. I am so glad I have a little girl. She's like my partner. She loves wearing my shoes. She loves putting my makeup on. She loves lip gloss. We can travel together one day, shop together. We'll decorate her college dorm together. I can plan her wedding. She is just, she's the best. She's my little girl. This world's amazing and I'm loving my life and I'm so blessed, but this is not it. I just know there's something better. I know that women are hurting. I know that men are hurting. I know that you can get through it. It might not be your plan, and it might not be what you want for your life. Know that God has a plan, and God works it all out. And life is just, it just is such a journey, and every step of it, good or bad, is still beautiful. Man, you hear a story like that, and I don't know, it just brings up all kinds of emotions. How could she say that good and bad, there can still be a plan and God can bring something beautiful out of it? And if you've been through a, a story that you've had a, a valley and then you come up to the mountain, you're like, yes, I, I can see that. It's happened in my life. Whether you call it fate or call it karma or call it God, you can say, I have been on that journey. Others have say, you know, I'm hoping for that story. I'm still stuck in the first half where something I planned for, something I deserve, something that's good hasn't happened. And quite frankly, I'm starting to give up faith that it's ever going to be different. And there's kind of three things that happen, whether it's a health crisis, a relationship crisis, in this case, a, mis a miscarriage. We start to think that, number one, this is personal. God's out to get me. Life's out to get me. The universe's out to get me. And that idea begins to separate you from the source of strength or significance or comfort in your life. Number two, it's pervasive. When one area of your life is not going well, it's so easy to think that everything's not going well because that one thing matters so much to us. I think the biggest thing that happens when you encounter one of those challenges, one of those valleys, is it feels permanent. 
If things aren't working according to plan, the plan was to be here at this time in this way, I didn't want to consider adoption. I didn't want to consider, I want a child of my own. It just feels like it will never change. Things will never be different. And yet she's able to say to us that she tapped into the voice of wisdom. And the voice of wisdom said to her that even when things were bad, God could make something beautiful out of the bad. Even though it felt permanent and it felt dark, there was a light coming. She was able to lean in to the, to the voice of wisdom. So how can we do that? Whether you're at the top of the mountain and we're cheering with you, or whether you're in the bottom of the valley wondering if you're going to make it through, how can we lean into the plan that's there? The ancient path of wisdom. Well, think of wisdom this way. Wisdom is often pain remembered. <laughs> oh, I remember what happened when. I've seen how holding on to bitterness destroyed that person's life. I don't want that to do it to me. Wisdom is pain your own or others remembered. Pain is often comes from wisdom rejected. We hang on to that bitterness. We hang on to that hopelessness. And it begins to just destroy other things in our life. But the question I think we want to ask ourselves is, is our theory about how things should go, our theory about how, how, how things should work, am I going to lean into wisdom's experience over eons of generations of wisdom, collected wisdom? Will I lean into wisdom's experience or my theory as to how it should work? And how could wisdom help me navigate the challenges of the mountains and the valleys that come in our life? That's what I want to talk about today. And the first one really comes out of what Ainsley was able to do, which is, can you trust God? <laughs> Can you lean in by trusting God with your broken heart? I mean, I would love to say that if you become a follower of God or Jesus, you're not going to have any broken heart experiences, but that is not the truth at all. However, the Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted. That there's a way in which when you're brokenhearted, when things are smashed, God draws near to you and you get access to his strength, his power, his might in a way you wouldn't in other ways. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon's writing, he says, the wise woman builds her house. And the word for build he uses there is not just to build initially, but it's to rebuild and to restore. When something smashes into the windows and, and crushes up the roof, you're able to constantly restore it and rebuild it and put the pieces back together again. The wise woman, the live and learn person, is able to take the wreckage that happens in life and continue to restore the house. The foolish person... Whatever happens, you just continue to tear down the house. You continue to neglect the house. And the whole house and all of its foundation begins to break because you couldn't restore it. And then it goes on. It says something really interesting here. It says, the heart knows its own bitterness. Now go back one. The heart knows its own bitterness. And a stranger does not share its joy. It's one thing to be brokenhearted. What's even harder, it says, is when you're brokenhearted and alone. That strangers don't know your your pain, strangers can't experience the joy when you get through that pain. See, to trust God with your broken heart is to say, yeah, I'm broken hearted, but I'm also, I'm not going to be alone in this. I want to somehow know that God is in this puddle with me. Other people are in this puddle with me. I'm not alone in this. And by doing so, we can flourish. It says, the tent of the upright, those who find that plan in the midst of heartache, can, can help you flourish even in the midst of challenges. Now, now this word he uses when he talks about heartache, is the word mara. It's really interesting. Now you can go to the next slide if you want. The heart knows its own bitterness. There are so many things in life that can make you bitter. You know, as good as your life is going in many areas, it can be one area, how you're treated, what happened, the circumstances, that thing you wanted that was so good that life didn't get you, it's easy to get bitter. 
And the word used here, the heart knows its own bitterness. The word is mara. And if you are a practicer of Judaism, and Christians celebrate this as well, we celebrate what's called Passover. Passover is a time that God delivered his people from the bondage, the bondage of waywardness, the bondage of rebellion, but it can also be the bondage of bitterness, the bondage of selflessness or selfishness, rather. But think about it as bitterness. What you will do at Passover is you'll say, I was stuck in a situation I couldn't get myself out of. For the Israelites, it was Egypt. And God came into that situation and broke me free from the bitterness, broke me free from the things I couldn't get free from. And when you celebrate Passover, you take a piece of matzah and you dip it into mara, which is bitter herbs. Same word used here for bitterness. Now, I hate horseradish sauce. So if that doesn't work for you, picture something that you hate that's bitter. So you take a piece of matzah and you dip it into the horseradish sauce and you take a bite of it. I wasn't brave enough to bring the horseradish sauce. <laughs> Every Passover, followers of Jesus, followers of Yahweh do this. It's a reminder that life will give you bitter herbs. And bondage to your own trespasses, bondage to your own rebellion, and bondage to your own bitterness will keep you enslaved. But then, you take that same piece of matzah, you dip it again into the mara, the bitterness, bitter herb. Then you dip it into apple coruscant, this dessert that's like nuts and caramel and apples. A sign that God can bring sweetness even out of your bitterness when you take a bite. A reminder that even in your most bitter moments, even in the most challenging of circumstances, even the most unmet dreams that you have, God still has a plan. He can make a plan. He can bring sweetness out of your bitterness. That's why it says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That friend is wisdom, and wisdom is God. He wants to stick closer to the brother, be with you in your heartache, be with you in your challenges, let you know you're not alone. In fact, the message of the Bible is that God didn't just watch from heaven the, the heartache. He came to heaven, to earth, to experience heartache. He knows what it's like to lose a friend. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like for an unjust trial. He knows what it's like to suffer. Wisdom in the person of Jesus is the friend who wants to be closer to you than even a brother. So, in your bitterness, in your challenges, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, it's really the difference between these two characters we've talked about, the live and learn person and the deja vu person. We all have reasons we could be bitter, all have reasons we could kind of let our house be neglected. But the live and learn person adjusts and builds your life by learning from what's happened, what will happen, and what might not happen. You say, you know, I've worried about this. I thought these were dead ends before, but there was a detour around that. I want to learn from that. And I want to not let despair capture me the way it did five years ago or ten years ago. Now, the deja vu person does the same thing over and over again. They just tear down and neglect the house. Because what do they do? They get stuck repeating cycles of resenting and tearing down themselves or others. They don't learn from their own hearts or from the life of others. I'll give an example. It's, it's a really stunning example. It's actually during, uh, during the days of the Nazis. There was a play called God on Trial, and it was based on an account of some Jewish prisoners, I guess, of the Holocaust, victims maybe is a better word, and they were there wrestling with why God is allowing Nazi Germany to do what they were doing, why God's not protecting his people. This particular man is a Nobel laureate um, prize winner, 
um, Ellie Weasel, and he said there was a day sitting in that camp, Nazi camp, that they decided to put God on trial. And they, they literally ran a trial for him. Is God protecting us? No. Guilty. Is God keeping his promises? No. Guilty. Has God allowed evil to prosper? Guilty. He said, we declared God guilty, and then we continued our daily prayers to him. Like, usually there's two options. God's not worthy, trustworthy, ditch him. Or if you're a religious person, God can do whatever he wants, you're not allowed to wrestle with him. But they found this third way, this way that says, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. But I tell you this, I'm not going to separate myself from the source of wisdom. I'm still not going to separate myself from the source of comfort. I'm still, even though I don't like it, even though I think you're guilty of this, I'm still going to trust that you have the way to make a way where there seems to be no way. Now that's stunning. And a lot of times we get to be the conduit of God's love to people who are going through challenges. In fact, we had an amazing story this week. Many of you may have seen Deborah around here. Uh, Deborah Burke, she, she turned 70 this week. And she's been coming since 2013. But she found out many years ago that she has MS. And the brokenheartedness of all the things that's taking away from her slowly has been very hard on her. She can't come to church without help. She can't come to her small group here without help. Well, then COVID hit, and she's even more isolated. And her small group of women at the Bible study, they missed her. And so they said, how can we love on her? How can we help her? How can we uh, be, the, be that, not that stranger who's not with you, but that friend that's closer than a brother? And so Ruthie Price said, you know what? I want to borrow one of the wheelchairs from the church if I could and go down and pick her up and take her to Kenwood Mall. And they went and went around Kenwood Mall, and, and she just called her up and called the, the women at the church up and said, oh, thank you so much. It's a glorious day. I haven't been out in forever. It was so nice to not be alone, so nice to know I'm cared for and loved. It was so impactful. They said, well, you know what? She doesn't have a wheelchair. We should buy her a wheelchair. And so one of the women, Jill, said, I'm going to take her wheelchair shopping. They went wheelchair shopping for three hours. I don't love anyone enough to go wheelchair shopping for three hours, any shopping for three hours, quite frankly. But, you know, i got to grow in this area. So they picked out the wheelchair. They found a cheaper one on Amazon, but the same model. So they ordered it, and they, they were going to deliver it to her. They said, hey, why don't you show up at, at church? We'll help you get there, and we want to deliver your wheelchair on your 70th birthday. Well, meanwhile, there's another person in our church named Larry. And Larry loves to take old rascals and scooters and put them back together. And they called Larry up and said, Larry, is there any chance that maybe we'd have an extra scooter that we could get for her? Give her a little bit more transportation? He's like, let me check. Called back, yeah. In fact, I want to give it to her. He fixes up the scooter. He brings it to the church. A couple of the guys at the church say, hey, we love cleaning stuff. They clean and polish it up to look brand new. Deborah comes into our uh, church expecting a wheelchair, which she got. But she's mesmerized with this big happy 70th birthday party. Everybody jumped out. Surprise! And she rode around the church and had a little rascal getting pictures with everybody here. She says, I can't wait to take my little rascal, my little scooter, and go see my granddaughter's soccer games. That's why we as a church are Horizon Community Church. We don't want you to be alone in your brokenheartedness. And sometimes when you are down, when you are, it's hard to trust. You have other people who kind of encourage you. They put courage in you. They put love in you. That's why we have small groups. 
Because we want other people to know what's going on with you. Whatever time you want to disclose it, we want you to know you're not alone in the midst of your challenges. And wisdom tells us that it's hard enough to be alone, but even worse than being alone is when you're brokenhearted and nobody knows. So take the voice of wisdom that says God wants to put other people around you to encourage you, to let you know you're not alone, to support you. Trust God with your broken heart. Secondly, there's going to be moments that it just feels like i got two ways to go. Will you lean in by trusting wisdom's roadmap? What is the roadmap God has for you in where you're going to head and where you're going to go? The Bible goes on to say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, your own theories about how it should go. In all your ways, acknowledge him. God, I'm, I'm, I'm as best I can trying to, to put you first here. And if you'll do that, if you'll lean in that direction, he will direct your path. Even if you make the wrong decision, he'll direct it back to, to what should be right. He, he will work in the midst of the good and the bad if you trust in him. Now, Jimmy Stewart is a guy who realized that. Now, I know many of you like Ryan Ventura. He speaks here often. He's our family minister. But you don't know he's a very jealous man. But he's only jealous of one thing. He's jealous of my Jimmy Stewart impersonation. So I'm going to resist the temptation to do my Jimmy Stewart impersonation because I don't want to lead him astray because he gets really jealous when he speaks next week. I want him to be at his best behavior. So I'm not going to do it. I'm very tempted. But Jimmy Stewart, after he was an actor for many years, he went to serve in World War II. He actually enlisted. And his father was a man of faith. He was a man of faith. But to having this moment, you're about to send your son off to war, World War II against the Nazis. And his dad as Jimmy describes it, was staring down at his toes, trying to come up with what's the thing a dad's supposed to say before your son goes off to war to give you courage and encouragement. He said, Dad just kept looking at his toes. He would look up to say something. Nothing came out. And finally, just almost exasperated at himself, he gave a quick hug and, and just scurried off very quickly. Jimmy Stewart said he later realized his dad had stuffed a little note into his pocket which he pulled out, and he opened it up. It was a letter from his dad and a book called The Secrets of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is about trusting God to be your refuge and your strength when you're going against the enemy and going against difficulty. His dad's note said something like this, Jimmy, I've been filled with worry and anxiety through my life at different phases, but I found when I trust in God, and the secrets of this psalm from the Old Testament, trusting in God, have helped me, and I'm trusting God for you in the situation, I hope you will find the same. Love, I'm proud of you, and I love you, Dad. Jimmy Stewart said it was so meaningful to him because he never heard his dad say, I love you. He knew his dad loved him, but he never heard it or read it or seen it until that moment. But his dad was saying, what I found directed my life through challenges, I want to direct your life. And that became a significant moment for Jimmy Stewart of Psalm 91, trusting in God, even as he became one of the longest-running bombers of World War II. When you saw him in, in It's a Wonderful Life, it's a moon, Mary? No, I didn't do it. Um, when, you see him in, uh, when you saw him in It's a Wonderful Life, actually some of those crying scenes, he's experienced what we know as PTSD from all the time he spent in the war. Trusting God. But if you trust God, it says he will direct your paths. He will steer, that you can say, hey, there's a hundred choices here. I want to try and make the right choice. But even if I make the wrong choice, I serve a God that can even steer that back to make me learn something from it. It's powerful. My friend Bill knew that. Bill came talk to me about five years ago. He was about to do a career change. He said, I wonder what God's will is for my life. 
And I, I suggested a book to him that he found very helpful. It's very long, but if you just want to read one chapter, read chapter 8. And it's called Discerning the Will of God or Decision Making in the Will of God. And it kind of comes against a typical Christian view of how to make decisions. A lot of Christians believe that there's only one right decision in every situation. Only one house God wants for you if you're buying a house. Only one car he wants you to buy if you're buying a car. Only one spouse he wants for you. Only one job he wants for you. Well, that, it's very romantic. But imagine how, how much pressure is on every decision you make if there's only one right decision. You come to the grocery store. Which parking lot does God want me to be in? Oh, my goodness. Which door does he want me to go in? I'm about to buy fruit. Did he want me to buy the banana first or the orange first? So the idea that there's only one right choice causes a lot of anxiety. And one of the, the plagues of our, of our time period is what's called overchoice. It used to be you had three choices of a career. Now you've got 10 million. If there's only one right choice, the stress it causes us, thinking, I've got to get this right. And every time you make one decision, you said no to 999,000 other decisions. So you overanalyze everything because there's only one right choice. The book I shared with Bill that day, he read it and he came back and he said, this is so freeing. There's just so many options that might be God's will. I said, yeah, yeah. It's not one right choice. It's what he calls the way of wisdom. If you want to pick the book up, chapter 8 and on, he critiques the, the previous views in the first seven chapters. Chapter 8, he gets real practical. Let me walk you through kind of what he says. Here's kind of the steps you take. you got a decision. What should I do? And so Bill did. What should I do? So should I do this career or that career? Well, you ask yourself, first of all, is there a moral issue here? That's the next step. Is this a moral decision? If so, then my question is, do I know and do I trust what God says? Meaning, hey, uh, God, I'm just praying my kids are really misbehaving. Should I murder them today? <laughs> That's a moral decision. God says no. My heart says yes. I'm going to trust that God's way is better. All right? Next step. Within that moral decision, are there any positive commands, moral commands? And God has a lot to say about our attitude, even more than our decision. Are you doing this with kindness? Are you doing this with love? Are you doing this with complaint? The positive ones are, here's how he wants you to do certain things. Or are there any negative moral commands? Like my example of do not murder, do not lie, do not commit adultery. And yet how many people have come into my office and said, you know, I just started this relationship with this woman. We got this great chemistry. I know this is what God has for me. How's your wife and kids feel about that? <laughs> but I'm telling you, you can talk yourself into anything on this thing. But God has given parameters to say, here's moral things that create a parameter for what you can do. Here's some things that are bad if you do them. Then if you have a non-moral decision, next step, it's so, so freeing. Will I trust and lean into wisdom's experience? There's not a right or wrong, but there are things that are wiser and things that are foolisher. So you ask yourself two things. What's the wise thing to do here? And then two, what do I want to do? The reason when I took my first job, I said to my wife, hey, we're in Chicago. I'm going to start looking for my first job. I got looking anywhere in the country, where do you want to go? She said, south, where it's warm. So because we wanted to be warm, we got a job in Atlanta. Turned down the one in Wisconsin. Not because it was only one job for me, because we followed the desire of our heart. God loves for you to do moral things and avoid immoral things, but then to follow wisdom and then do what you want and enjoy it. Two questions you're going to ask yourself. What's the wise thing to do is really, am I trusting God's experience here? Let go of my bitterness, even though I don't want to let go of the bitterness. It'll be wiser, it'll be better for you if you let go of that. And on the question, what do I want to do? Sometimes what you want to do isn't happening in the right timing. Like in the miscarriage or in the pregnancy. You might say, what I want to do is have a child of my own. What I want to do is have a child by now in my career. 
But will I trust God's timing if it's not my timing? Will I trust his different plan that he wanted me to pursue adoption rather than having my own child? I don't want that. Well, maybe God has a plan that will supersede that, and you will find the, the absolute beauty of adoption you would never consider it if you hadn't gone through this. That doesn't minimize your brokenheartedness, but it does say within the parameters, God has a plan for me. So I talked to Bill last week, and he said, Chad, it's just been amazing. I've been in this career for five years now since that book. It just seemed a little too wishy-washy for me, just too much freedom. I said, yeah, but it took off the pressure that there was one way versus the other way. He said, I have so, this process was so helpful for me. I am flourishing. I am growing. I am happier. I am challenged. I took this job really because I wanted to challenge, and my other job had gotten too easy. I was just coasting, and I needed to challenge myself. I said, that sounds like God. So I hope that book can help you. Just a way of framing how to discover God's will and, and put yourself into what's called the way of wisdom. Now, it alludes to that third thing, and, and, and Ainsley alluded to it, so did the story with Bill. The idea that God can work even in the midst of bad decisions, and God can work even when things aren't going the way you want. And that's the third thing. Can you lean in by trusting God to, to turn dead ends into detours? Can he make a detour out of a dead end? Because when you really want something, when you really pursue something, and when it's a good thing in particular, it's very frustrating because you're like, Oh my goodness, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to get that job. I didn't get in the right college I wanted. My kids aren't getting to the right college they want to. Oh my goodness, my grandkids are playing uh, b- basketball on the, on the college team, but they're sitting on the bench and I'm feeling stressed about it. Whatever it is. It just feels like a dead end. But part of leaning in is saying, I'm going to trust God that even what feels permanent and feels like a dead end, God has this long history, and wisdom says there's a long history of God making detours out of dead ends. So I feel that this is a dead end, it's permanent, but I'm going to trust it might be a detour and there might be a better plan. Let's go back to that passage again. Look what it says. Trust. Trust. That's the primary issue at stake here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. God, I don't even like it, but I'm going to trust you. God, I don't prefer it, but I'm going to trust you. And lean not. This whole thing is about leaning are you leaning on your understanding? This is definitely a dead end. Or leaning on his understanding? Wait till you see what I'm going to do. Are you leaning on your, oh, this is so bitter. Or leaning on his apple core set, but the sweetness is coming. If you will acknowledge him, he will direct your path. I don't think there's any better example to that in my life than what I do every week with my son, Quinn. So Quinn is 13. And if you've never seen Quinn or been on my Facebook page, a lot of people watch. Um, here's what it looks like to go skiing with Mr. Quinn. You have never seen more joy than this little guy skiing with me. Now, Quinn skis downhill as fast as anybody. No one keeps up with us. Quinn is partially blind. They can only see about three feet in front of him. Quinn has severe autism. I've been skiing with him for nine years. Started his skiing right here between my legs. That's why I had my back at the chiropractor for five years. Now he's in front of me. I have a five-point harness on him, and I have a dog leash. And I can extend it to 3 feet or 30 feet, and we ski down the mountain and have a ball twice a week. It's kind of the one sport we do together. And it's amazing because you've not seen real joy until you've seen the joy of special needs. A person with special needs just have this unique joy. I mean, Mr. Quinn has been working on this comedy routine for 13 years. And I have no idea what it's about, but he has laughed more at his hands And I cannot wait to get to heaven because there is going to be a packed out Friday night for all of eternity of the Mr. Quinn comedy show 
where we're finally going to hear all that material he's been working on. It is just amazing. And in and, and a, and, and a culture that's obsessed with what people think about you and what people think about you, boy, my son has no idea anyone's thinking about him. The joy and the innocence and to see him whisking down the mountain with the, with the, the, the wind on his face and the, and the coldness and to see the joy he has. There's sometimes he's jumping up and down while we're skiing. Now, I mentioned he was blind. Skiing is not necessarily the best sport if you're blind. There's people in the way. So part of what he does is as soon as we take off, he reaches back and he puts his hand, as you can see, on that string. Dad, you got me? All right, I'm trusting in you. I'm holding on to you. And he holds down and I direct his pass. And I'm, I'm a pretty good skier. I've become a phenomenal skier. And, of course, the rule is if you put 10,000 hours into something, you're an expert. I am the world's greatest expert at autism skiing. <laughs> I'm also the only one, but I am the world's greatest expert at autism skiing. So what happens is I'm his brakes. He can steer a little bit. He can go fast. He can X <clears throat> a little, not much. And so when I see something coming 10, 20 feet ahead, I will steer to the left. I'll say, come over here, buddy. Come on, follow me. He'll trust my voice. He'll kind of steer over to the left. I'll go. I'll steer over there. Sometimes when he can't hear me or when he can't see it's coming or we need to turn quicker because the snowboarder just fell down, you'll see me carve left, and I will use centrifugal force, and I will spin him around. What does he do? He trusts, he enjoys, he knows dad's got him. Dad has securely got him fastened. So much so that when we get into the uh, chairlift at Perfect North, there's no like part that comes down to protect you. So when he was real small, he would get upset and he tried to jump off the ski lift. And that's a two-story fall. So I put one of those big carabiners you get for the groceries on his five-point harness. As soon as we get in there, I harness him to the, to the ski lift. So when we get up there, I unharness him. He's secure. Dad's looking out for him. Dad's directing him. Now, Quinn has learned much quicker than I have learned how to trust my Heavenly Father to direct my paths, especially when it came to special needs. I pounded my brain, pounded my creativity, pounded my, my uh, management skills to solve the unsolvable, to, to take the next 20, 80 years of his life and figure, see if I can figure it out in the next 12 months. If you go back to a path, back to that decision-making matrix again, think of that path again. There's the moral on one side, the immoral on the other. There are times we stumble into immoral decisions, and there's consequences to that. Oh, ow, and we wander back into the moral parameters of what's permissible. But I've done many things that have been foolish. I have pain from bad decisions. I end up going to hypervigilance counseling because I try to control things that are uncontrollable. Wisdom would say, hey, Chad, Nobody can control the uncontrollable. I can. I can. No one has tried it with my skill set. I've got a particular set of skills. Right? And I do have a particular set of skills. But wisdom would say, Chad, you need to wait on certain things. You can't control certain things. So a lot of the pain I've experienced was not trusting God to direct my paths, but thinking I had to direct all my paths. As I look back over the last 13 years, the amazing things, the things God did, that had nothing to do with my ingenuity. The BCBA, who works with Quinn, who's a specialist, she's known him since he was five, found it as a, as a random uh, person on a, a care.com ad, and she's been the secret to our success for the last 13 years. Now, Hope Bridge, which we use for Quinn for his care, opened up right near us. I had nothing to do with it, despite looking everywhere and spending tens of thousands of hours on it. And I could just go line after line after line of the ways in which God brought supernatural things in my life, despite me trying to control everything, 
simply because I was saying, God, but what I'm trying to do is really trust you. And in my good decisions and bad decisions, God directed my path, and he can do the same for you. So there's my question for you. Ainsley said something really profound. She said, there are good times, there are seasons God wants to teach us certain things, but God can make everything beautiful in its time. Do you remember saying that? What a weird thing to say. And you might say, well, easy for you to say, you got your baby now. I don't. But she was able to say, if I could go back and tell myself, I'd tell myself there's seasons and God can make everything beautiful. That's my question to you. Will you trust that this time, whatever time you're in, can this time be his time? His time to make something beautiful out of this. His time to take your broken hearted and put it back together. This time to give you a path for wisdom. This time to say what seems like a dead end can really be a detour. But can you trust that this time will be his time? The writer of this ancient wisdom, Solomon, wrote another book, and it was called Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 3, he has a very famous passage. He says there are seasons and times for everything. He says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose. There can be a purpose under the sun. There's a time to be born. There can also be a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. Then he goes on, and he, he puts his main point here at the end. There's a time to weep. When people are weeping, you just enter the brokenheartedness like God does with us. But there's also a time to laugh and to rejoice with other people on the mountaintop. There are times to mourn, and there's a time to dance. A time to gain, but there's also a time to lose. And then look what it says. For God has made everything beautiful in its time. For he's put eternity into our hearts. God can take the good, the bad, the mountains, the valleys, and bring it all together to direct your path.